Yehuda's Fletcher got sexually abused at 15 years old. I was being abused by in my bedroom and his wife walked in. I'll never forget that image of her in the bedroom door. So I'm on the bed, jumped up off me and he's standing up against the wall. But let's just rewind her story a little. Yehudis lived in Israel with her family until she got expelled from school. From there, she moved to Manchester, away from her family, and moved into the house of her future abuser. I think the grooming probably started straight away. I knew it was wrong, I felt it was wrong. Obviously every cell in my body knew that what was happening was wrong. But Yehudis wasn't the only victim. There was also offences against small people. Fast forward a few years, her abuser got caught and was sent to jail for 13 years. But a mere few months ago, he was released. But he's now out, he's um, free, and I do not believe he has been rehabilitated. This is a fourth story on how Yehudis Fletcher bravely survived sexual assault. In this podcast, we do talk openly about sexual assault. So if that's not something for you, if you don't like listening to that sort of thing, then no worries. You can click off the podcast right now. But I just wanted to warn you, we do talk very openly about this sort of thing. But we do talk openly about this sort of thing because we need to. Because we need to stand up for those that have been sexually assaulted, that those that might be sexually assaulted, or those that are sex, being sexually assaulted. We need to stand up for our kids, for our community, and for everyone. And one of the best ways to do that is to create conversation and to create awareness for it. So that's why we did this podcast, and I think it's incredibly important that we did this. And uh, just on the topic of anyone who is listening, if anyone who is listening has been abused, then just you can get in contact with one of the numbers that I'll put in the description. You can get in contact with them and they should support you uh, with the abuse and to fight against it and to get out of it or whatever it is, the different numbers. We'll, we'll put several numbers in the description, whether it's just for listening, whether it's just to help you through it. You can look at the numbers and see what works best for you. Hello, you heard this. Why did you want to come on? You guys asked me. <laughs> Anyone who wants to talk to me, I'll, I'll engage in dialogue pretty much. That's, that's my parameter. As long as you've like, not committed some terrible offence, oh, no. um, I'm happy to, <laughs> happy to engage in, in dialogue. Do you mind if we start at the beginning of your life story and go throughout when like, you were born in Scotland? No, yeah, yeah. Scotland. So I was, Glasgow. Yeah, I was born in Scotland. That is in Scotland. It's great. What school did you go to? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was born in Glasgow. My yeah. father was a, a Rov in a kind of, it wasn't a Heimischer community, so it wasn't, um, how much do I need to translate? What's your audience? So, so it's not, not all of them are that religious. So. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't a, a particularly religious, but it was a very traditional community. And then there was also a Kolel community. A lot of um, smaller Jewish communities sometimes have a Kolel attached to it, which means that they have the ability to bring in um, outside Jewish and halachic expertise and the community benefits from that and you have these young um, religious families who get this opportunity of, of starting out their life in, in a new community and, and learn learn uh, begin their leadership journey so that's the community that I grew up in so from in a not so from community yeah and then you moved to Israel yeah 15. my parents made Aliyah when I was 14, 14 it was the it was the day after yeah. my 14th birthday we arrived in Ben Gurion and um the immigration officer wished me mazel tov. I'll never forget that. <laughs> um, and uh, they actually said to me, you get a double mazel tov. Um, I didn't settle well in Israel. Um, Aliyah is difficult at the best of times. Make Aliyah when you're 14 is is probably 
not a good idea, but that, that's what we did. What did you get to the wrong sort of school? Um, so the thing is, I came from being, like I was saying, so we, I was the Rolf's daughter, so I, we were the, kind of the frummest people around. Yeah. Um, and then I was suddenly in this base yaka where I didn't know what, we, my, my parents also didn't know what the social norms were and all the unspoken rules. I was wearing the wrong tights. I was... <laughs> Uh, we went to Chutzlaret and we didn't like, so we traveled outside of Israel and we didn't know that that was a thing. So I was in a school where that was, you know, to travel outside the land of Israel and you needed special permission for that. Because, really? yeah, because you're going to be exposed to a different way of thinking. Even though I'd literally just come from there. Um, so that I, I got into trouble in school for that, um, traveling out for my brother's wedding. So that didn't go very well. And then I. Once I kind of hadn't settled well into that first school, very often happens in, in very religious schools that if you don't settle in and it doesn't work, they throw you out. That's what happens. And once I'd become that, right, so once I'd been thrown out, then I wasn't, I was kind of already um, tarnished. So I couldn't go, I wasn't accepted into the less intense base Yaakov environment so that at that point, I was now a reject and I needed to go. The only school I could go to was a school for rejects. Thank God there was one. Um, can I tell you a funny story? Go on. Okay, so the school that I went to after that was in the outskirts of Jerusalem and it was over the Green Line. So that's the 1967 um, territory and, and it wasn't... Because my parents were very worried about that and they I had to like change buses in, in an area that... There had been it was a, it was during the second intifada so that it was, it was kind of a scary thought for me to be going to this school, so we went to see Rocham Scheinberg, who, um, if anybody has the image of him, he's the guy with lots and lots of tits, um, and he wore 120 pairs of tits. Oh, that's yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Heard about him. Yeah, so we went to to see him. Um, my father was trying to explain the predicament. It was the only school that was going to accept me, and it was a school for kind of English-speaking girls, and and it was also a base Yaakov, but it was in this place that felt dangerous. And Racham Hashem said, "Shoima pesoim Hashem, God watches over fools." <laughs> so that's my kind of that's how I started off, and it, I I guess that I I took from that um, that that's what that's what I was seeing, like what what you got yourself into this foolish situation, but God will watch over you anyway, and. It, wasn't um i can laugh about it now it was incredibly painful to be spoken about at, at the time in that way um i short sort of over the next year um sort of things became progressively untenable for me in israel and i came back i went to yavna here in manchester i had to find a place to stay and i lived with the First, a different family didn't work out, and then you know we were looking for somewhere else for me to stay. And there was this advert in the local advertiser get slipped through people's doors, um, and it said that this was a, a family looking for a female lodger. That was this specified advert. You didn't get worried when you saw that. Um, do you know what? I, I I didn't. You know, I was a kid, and yeah. there were adults who were supposed to get worried. How old and were you there's at the time? A, so I was 15, yeah. and those adults didn't know enough. To, to get worried, to see that as a red flag. Yeah. Um, and I moved in at the greenhouses and Todd's greenhouse has just come out of prison after serving most or two thirds of a sentence for um, 
attacks, both so sexual assaults, both against me and and uh, another individual. Um, and the, in his original charges, there were um, there was also offences against more people. Um, right at the beginning of the trial process, those charges were separated off for a potential future trial. So so there are still charges that lay on file against him, but he hasn't. Um, so that's that's not exhausted, but he's now out. He's um, free, uh, and I do not believe he has been rehabilitated. How do you feel about that then? Him being um, free. Him being free. Um, I think it's kind of it's scary, not just for me, because you know, for me, the police um, and and the the parole services are, are you know they they're in contact with me. My house is flagged, so if anything happens, you know, my my personal safety, my children's personal safety is, is quite well looked after. Um, my concern is, is for children, young people here in, 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 the, in the, from community in Manchester who are at risk. So yeah, it's a, it's a more practical, pragmatic safeguarding concern that I have. Yeah, so let's, let's go back to you stayed in the, you lodged in Greenhouse's house. Yes. To go to Yavna. So yeah, I went to I uh, went to Yavna, and um, at some point, I think he recognised that I was in an environment where potentially I could tell someone, and and he, you know. He oh, it started as soon as you went in. Um, it. I think the grooming probably started straight away. Yeah. Um, while I was staying there, he he through various ways removed me from school. So I I stopped attending school and I started working. I worked at the print house next to Cope's. That was my first job. Oh, so and I was... did he draw you out of school? Yes. Oh, okay. parents' permission? I'm just going to quickly interrupt to remind you to subscribe to our channel to see more content like this. Anyway, back to the video. Honestly, that's my parents' story to tell. I don't, <laughs> I don't know exactly what went on there, but um, he organised it. He spoke to the school. Um, and I started work. I was still 15. At this point, I'm still 15. Oh, so you've only been in there for a few months? Yes. I oh, okay. lived there for about five and a half, six months. Okay. Yeah. And then you moved on to the print house. I moved on to the print house. I worked there. Then I went back to Israel for a bit. Then I lived in Gateshead for a bit. Yeah. Worked in Danskis. Any of your listeners went yeah. to Gateshead Yeshiva, you'll know all about Danskis and the um, separate times for, for girls and boys to go shopping. I, um, yeah, they got married when I was 18. I come from a strong, what we call Litvish family, so a real Lithuanian background. Um, with a strong kind of emphasis on sort of Gateshead style uh, way of being from, and but I got married into Satma, which is in Stamford Hill. Well, that's, it um, seems a bit strange because you're brought up in a really religious community, and then, yeah. then, I, then I went to Yavna, yeah, which is a much less religious. It seems. Um, I don't think it was really thinking about religiosity. It was about how do you get a school place for a girl who's left her family in Israel, all yeah. of a sudden going to be staying with a different family. Um, my father and Mr. Rowe knew each other from many years back, and I think it was quite easy to arrange rather oh, okay. than anything else. Yeah. And also, like you're saying, really religious, but we didn't have those kinds of... Cause we were, quote-unquote, out of town. Yeah. Um, I'd had a brother who went to Jewish grammar, a brother who went to Machina, um, a brother who went to Gates of Jewish boarding school. So it... I don't think, from my parents' perspective, it wasn't as if you had to go to a specific school. We we had a, a different approach. It was more about let's just get a school to go to. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I wasn't there for very long. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then I married into Satma, and I was married briefly. Um, when did you leave uh, the greenhouse's house? 
Oh, okay, so go back. <laughs> oh, do you want to hear that whole story? Okay. Um, I was being abused by Todras in my bedroom, and his wife walked in, and she... I don't think she was very surprised. In fact, she said, I knew it. I knew you were in here. And I'll never forget that image of her in the bedroom door. So I'm on the bed. Todras was had jumped up off me and was standing up against the wall. And she, I think there was a light on in my room, but the, the, the light outside my room was off. And she was standing there in the doorway and she's quite pale and she has, she, she was wearing a nightgown and, and, and it seemed to me that the image that I have of her in that moment is kind of this kind of billowing um, presence who had, in a moment I felt like she had come to save me but it became very, very clear within, a, within just one more moment that she was not there to save me at all. She was there because she felt or, you know, again, this is her story to tell but, but what transpired afterwards was I was blamed. So I was seen as the, um, I, I had tempted this weak man into my bedroom. Yeah. And that's how I was Wait, positioned. Who blamed you? I was, I mean, how, like, what's your public liability insurance like? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not as well. <laughs> oh, but so, so then you left. I, I was, I, I moved out very quickly. Yeah, within, uh, within three days. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you move to from there? I lived in uh, Beryl Cohen's house, the Robert OJ. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's where I lived. Wait, so what did you do about the greenhouses? Did you just leave it alone or? No, I didn't leave it alone. So I mentioned before I went to Israel and I spent a bit of time there and I had a conversation there with a rabbi who I knew previously. And I told him, he's like, well, what's going on with you? Like, let's catch up. And I said, you know, I'd moved out of the greenhouse's house. And he said, um, like, why? What happened? I did not go well. And I, and I said, no, it was, you know, I, I think I must have been a bit cagey about it. And he said, um, did something go wrong there? And he really pushed me on it. And um, so he kind of brought that out of me. And he was the first person who used the word abuse. And no one else had used it up until that point. And that was, an, that was a, a pivotal moment for me, hearing someone outside of my head. You know, I knew it was wrong. I felt it was wrong. Obviously, every cell in my body knew that what was happening was wrong, but I didn't have a, a word. And that's why yeah. I campaign so strongly now for sex and relationship education in from schools, because from kids also need, like, we absolutely, like, the idea that we don't need language to protect ourselves. Uh, you know, because that language is not used, like that we need it extra, like we need it more than other kids. Um, yeah, so I did not have those words and, and I couldn't use words to keep myself safe. Um, and neither did the adults around me have the language that they needed. So he was, that was a pivotal moment. He used those words and um, he went back and he spoke to other people. Um, next thing I knew, I'm literally in the, in the Cohen's, Beryl Cohen's oh, house. Oh, so he helped him? Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. So I'm in the Cohen's house, and like the, I get this phone call on the landline. I don't know if anyone knows Ruth Cohen. She's the nicest person in the world, um, Rebel's wife. And she's okay. like, you is, you have a phone call. And I'm like, who is it? And she's like, it's Yehuda Brody from the basin. Yehuda <laughs> um, Brody is dead, so I feel comfortable saying this now, unless he has some kind of estate that's going to sue me. Um, yeah, so that, that came from him. Um, 
we know what you've done. Do you think you're his first? Um, was, of con- was he trying to help? I, I don't know what he was trying to do. Yeah. I can only tell you about the impact of his actions on me. Yeah. Um, and he told me to come into the basin with uh, any evidence that I had and also to write out um, a statement of what happened. And he killed it. I don't know what else he went off and did, but he said, this is not, you know, we have dealt with this. You, you, you park oh, so it So you left here. it in his hands. I left it in his hands. Came from it. Nothing came from that. I know that people were abused after that as well. And what then happened was, you know, I didn't shut up about it for 10 years. I, I was, anybody that I came into contact with, anyone that I thought possibly had an iota of influence over what went on in, in Manchester and even in London, because Greenhouse is a very hush of a name. It's a very respected name. He was a diner at the based in, in Stanford Hill where I lived. He was... Um, also quite connected in the Hasidic world and in Manchester he was involved with the Horodonka Rebbe, Rabbi Weiss, and he also had other sort of contacts in Stamford Hill. Um, so anyone that I felt would possibly listen, I told what happened and, and then I, you know, I, I got married, divorced, married again, had three babies and when my youngest now was then three weeks old, I got well, my brother got a phone call from another victim's brother who phoned my husband. So there's all these men um, discussing me and and deciding whether or not to pass on this message. And eventually my husband came to me and said, um, somebody else has reported into the police and, and they want to know if, you, if you'll do that as well. Um, initially I didn't feel like I could. I felt like I needed permission. Uh, to speak to the police about my own experience, but I did think that I, I, what I committed to doing right from the start was I said I would support the other victim's account because I knew that it was true and I'd witnessed some of it. So we sort of went with that initially, but that turned very quickly into uh, my giving my own account to the police and then a very exciting, ridic- like literally Hollywood-worthy story of international escape and, and you know, he, he was arrested, but then he escaped to Israel via Belgium and then um, you know as far as, as we knew he you know he could have been gone for years and years but then just so happens that a Manchester boy probably about your age or a little bit older saw him on a bus mm. oh really right, yeah. no no saw him on a bus in Israel oh, okay. and uh, phoned the police in Israel and told them that this guy's a fugitive they're on a bus from like somewhere in the south on the way to Yerushalayim and told the police that this guy is a fugitive from Manchester and he's on the bus. So the police met the bus in the central bus station. Then there's like some kind of high-speed chase as he mm. tries to escape the police as they meet him off the bus. Um, but he was eventually apprehended in Israel. But then it still took months and months and months to get him back here to the UK, put on trial, hung jury. So that means that the jury couldn't come to a decision and he was retried. It was almost as if he had been given... He, he kind of just went through... A, went through the process of the trial again, that's what his defence did, but the prosecution had almost had an opportunity to practice. Um, I think the second trial went more smoothly than the first, there was more evidence, more people had come forward, and, um, you know, they. I mean, the CPS outdid themselves, they brought in a victim. Um, she, she Charges were not brought um, in with reference to what happened to her, but she had her own experiences of him, they, they brought her in from Australia. 
Um, so they like pulled out all the stops and uh, yeah, it yeah. ended in a conviction. How long did that pro- process take? Um, the whole spiel, including the appeal afterwards, was because he was designated dangerous and, and that means um, that he would have to serve two-thirds of his sentence rather than half of his sentence would be served in prison and the rest on license and he also got five years extended license so he appealed on the fact that he would be considered classed as as dangerous i mean it's not really uh it's it's not rocket science definitely is dangerous um so that went to the court of appeal and the court of appeal argument that he made was he's only ever been attracted to those two girls that he was charged with offences against. It went absolutely nowhere because in the second trial there had been this third girl who was flown in from Australia, so that went nowhere. But what it meant for me and the trespass on me personally was that it wasn't put to bed, it was a continuous trespass against me. Um, and that took, from start to finish, about three, three and a half years. Oh, well, so it was quite a long period of your yeah, life. Yeah, how, yeah, How did challenge. the rest of your life change over that period? Because obviously there's quite a big change yeah absolutely so I think that's um, yeah good question I through that process really discovered my voice I really found out for the first time um, that I might not be agreed with, like not everyone's going to agree with me and and what I say is not necessarily going to change people's minds but I deserve a, a seat at the table that was my um that was my, my biggest, yes. literally, a seat. Yeah. Well, see, at this table, thank God, seats at other tables as well. Um, yeah, so that's what gave me that um, realization. In 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 the halachic world, a woman might have nemonus, so she might be believed on the face of it, but she can't give aidus. She can't be a witness. So I would speak to rabbis, and they would say to me, "Do you know? I'm really sorry. I can see that this what happened to you, terrible, shouldn't have happened. Can't do anything about it." Why? Because you're a woman. That's tough. That's tough to hear for you, probably, right? Well, it's um, something that I have grown up knowing. Knowing that I am half a person. Knowing that I am a vessel to create... Um, and to A vessel to create, literally. That's what, you know, that's what women are, are here in the world. And, and, I'm, and I'm useful to, to exist as, as a, a creation of God, but, but actually when it comes down to it, I'm not actually treated with the same rights as, as men. Um, so by virtue of my chromosomes, somehow I'm, I'm a lesser person. Um, so that was my original belief. I, that wasn't new to me. That's what I was brought up with, to learn in in uh in the outside world that actually other people did consider me to be a person um was revolutionary and um especially the actual court environment right it happens to be some of the courts are all chrome and glass i happen to be in a courtroom in minchel street where it's all wooden panels and the acoustics are are great and and it feels a bit like a shul actually so standing there, um, giving evidence, I'm used to being upstairs in the gallery and, and, and completely unheard. And instead, there I was in the witness box and everyone was quiet and listening to me and they weren't necessarily going to listen to me. I didn't know from the outset what, what the jury were going to decide. 
and um, they weren't necessarily um, in my, thinking in my favour to begin with either, right? The defence was there as well, and they certainly didn't think very much of me. And, and you know, even the, in terms of who was in the courtroom and, and in the gallery, the place was chock-a-block in men in black trousers and white shirts who were there to defend uh, Greenhouse, not me. Um, but they had to be quiet and listen, and that was revolutionary for me. And it was life-changing. It felt powerful. It felt powerful, absolutely. So I know now you... Did you found your as a sexual assault? Um, what is it exactly? You founded something about sexual assault? Uh, no. So so um, there are two Yehudises, <laughs> and and okay. we are frequently mistaken for each other. Uh, Yehudis Goldsobel founded Migdal and Munar after she um, was sexually abused by and then put Mendy Levy in prison. Uh, Mendy Levy's Lubavitcher. He lives in in Golders Green. He's well respected. Um, leads to Phyllis, all sorts. Um, he's also a rapist. He, um, yeah, so I think out of that experience, he had just gone to set up an organization called Meizal She was the chief executive of Meizal Mona till not long ago. Um, I set up my own project. It's called Project Nachamu. And, and it's, and it's a, got a slightly different approach. Um, Migdal is there as a support service to people who have experienced and um, also to, to provide education and awareness raising for organizations. Nahamu has a kind of taken a step back from that and says, hang on, what are the systemic issues that are going on in the community that contributes to experiences like mine? So that's not to say that what happened to me wasn't terrible, absolutely. But the reason it happened is much more interesting and it's much more productive to me to think about how can we restructure and tweak our community organizations and not just the organizations within it but our community organization in, in it from a sociological perspective yeah. how can we do things slightly differently to make sure that people do have that power in them from the beginning to make sure that people have personal autonomy to make sure that people um in positions of power have, uh, you know, so there's oversight to make sure that there's there's more accountability. How has all this experience led up to how you, you teach your children? Because you mentioned that you want to teach your children about, I'm sure, I'm sure you have already <coughs> taught your children like about, about sex or about the consent or about those sort of things. Yeah. How's, how's that changed? How's your experience changed how you teach them? Um, I've taught my children about consent since the day mm. they were born, yeah. right from the outset. Um, you can talk to a child about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you say little things, right, we're going to get undressed now. I'm going to undo your buttons. Oh, it feels cold. Just helping them be conscious of the experience of what's going on with their bodies and in their bodies. Um, and then really small things. Teaching consent is not necessarily about telling teenagers about having sex that's like the lessons of consent start when a child is really really little things like you know we, t we tell children right hold hands because we're going to wash our hands until they die right and then we say to the children hold hands in a chain or put your hands on the child in front of you actually maybe that child doesn't want to be touched and it's about saying things like to a young child who you haven't seen for a while not just hugging them or kissing them or picking them up or pinching their cheek, but really respecting their um, their personal autonomy and their, their bodily autonomy and, and checking in with them. 
How do you want to say hello? Do you want to wave? Do you want a fist bump? Or do you want a hug? Um, and, and if we can instill those things in really, really young children and normalize that kind of thing, it will be impossible for us as they grow up to normalize non-consensual activities, right? Uh, that child will know innately that, that they own their Is that what you're trying to teach space. in schools? I don't teach in schools. No, no, Mine is a policy organization, I mean, but yes, I'm absolutely. Trying to push in that's the sort of thing that yeah. I would like to see in primary schools. Yeah. Um, a trauma-informed, body-positive, um, personal autonomy education. So it's yes. not especially sexual, then? It's nothing to do with sex. Sex is by the by. It's like necessary for reproduction and, and human fulfillment. That's a whole different topic, But it's topic. for adults. Yeah. Um, we're talking about your body, your space, being comfortable in your in you know knowing your Dalit Amis, knowing that space around you belongs to you that nobody um can come into that space without two things your explicit permission and you being aware of it right because what we have often in cases of abuse is disassociation so people who say even something like i'm going to the dentist right that is an unpleasant experience nobody is going to sit here and say to you now, it's definitely fun to go to a dentist, although if you go to Alana Pine, she's got Netflix when you look up onto the ceiling. That's, really? Yeah, just to change dentists. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> quick plug. Um, if you talk to a child about that experience and say, instead of saying, you zone out, literally watch Netflix, put some headphones on while this un unpleasant experience goes on, <clears throat> then, then what you're teaching the child is to disassociate from the unpleasant experience and you're inviting them to kind of leave their body while the unpleasant thing happens. And what we want to say is, if an, if an unpleasant experience is necessary, we're gonna to say to the child, this is why it's necessary. It's not gonna feel nice, and I won't lie to you about it feeling nice, it will hurt. And these are the things we're going to do to help you feel comfortable in the meantime, to help you stay present through this unpleasant experience. Don't dentists do that already? Dentists are great oh. at doing it, absolutely, and that's why I brought it up. Yeah. But what I'm talking about is we can transfer that knowledge that we have yeah. into other situations as well. So, for example, if you if you are if you if you're a child who's being abused and you've been told, you know, in in your head other situations, right? You've been told it's it, it'd be fine it's going to be over in a minute, then you'll just go to that space. But if you come from a, a family and, and a, an education environment where you're encouraged to stay in your body, you'll notice what's going on. It will be much more difficult to perpetrate that abuse and it will be a conscious experience that that um, is, is much easier to stop, yeah. both yeah. for the child yeah. themselves, but it's not to children to keep themselves safe, but also for the other children around them. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the sex-free sex education that I would promote for How's children. How is the difference of like, consent being different between your, ch your children and the children's school? Have you tried to campaign within the school or tried to change the school for your children? Um, I, I mean, it, it sounds, sounds like you have maybe an over-inflated image of what I can actually oh, no, do. No, but, yeah, um, oh. yeah what, I, what I would promote is yeah. that kind of education but I don't go into individual schools or anything like that. Yeah. Do you mind if we talk about your youngest child? My youngest child? Yeah. 
Um, you'd have to get his consent first. If you would like to do that, we can chat to him and see if he'll come on. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any questions? I know, I think that's good. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. If you enjoyed watching that video, click here to subscribe or click here to watch more of our videos.